0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA-approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.
1: For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300.
0: Remember to
2: ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Welcome everybody to another episode of Doctor Matt and Doctor Mike's medical podcast. I'm Doctor Mike Todorovich. I'm joined by my co-host Matthew. Matthew, that's his name, Doctor Matthew Barton. Uh, we're both senior lecturers of anatomy and physiology.
2: Does that mean we're old?
0: Uh, yeah. Well, we're not decrepit lecturers of anatomy and physiology and pathophysiology and pharmacology at Griffith University in beautiful sunny Queensland, Australia, and we've got another episode today, man.
2: Blood lipids in seven minutes.
0: Well, we're talking about dietary fats mainly and dietary lipids. Uh, And so I think the first place to begin is we need to talk about... Okay, Matt's jumping straight into it. Let's talk about digesting fats. So I want you to imagine you're biting into a big, delicious cheeseburger.
2: Okay, yes.
0: You take that bite, you start to chew, chew, chew. What's in that cheeseburger?
2: Um... From the fat point of view?
0: Uh, I think from the macronutrient point of view.
2: Oh, The, the burger itself, so that's the, um, the baked good, <laughs> that's a carbohydrate. Yep. Um, the cheese, dairy, fat, and then there's the meat, which um, is protein and fat. And then if it's got lettuce, does cheeseburgers have lettuce? Some do. Okay. So there's a lot of fat and protein. Okay.
0: And Any carbs ten? in the bun.
2: Yeah, in the, in the bun, yeah. I thought you said the bum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, goes to the bum. Now, Ultimately. Uh, now, uh, the fat itself, probably more saturated fat. But, Maybe. But we can talk about that in the podcast. That's right. This is a teaser.
0: Yes. We are interviewing today Dr. Kevin Klatt. Um, Dr. Klatt is a postdoctoral fellow at Baylor College of Medicine and he is a nutrition researcher. He knows everything there is. About lipids, Uh, and so he's going to correct us. But what we're going to go through now is a bit of an anatomy and and physiology precursor to the episode. So, as Matt indicated, we've got the three macronutrients, proteins, fats, and carbs in that burger.
2: So, let's focus on the patty, and and that's not your grandmother, and the cheese.
0: Okay, the fats, basically, All right? So, these fats, or dietary lipids, for example, are going to be tricyglycerides which are made up of three fatty acids and a glycerol. Yep. Cholesterol, yep. and phospholipids. Sounds good. All right, there are dietary and maybe lipids, free fatty fatty acids and a couple of free
2: fatty acids. Okay. So, so in the mouth, chew it up, yep. down in the esophagus, into the stomach, not much happens there for fat. In we go into the duodenum. Now we have to start breaking it down.
0: Yeah, so this is the first major site of digestion for fat. Carbs and proteins have already pretty much been digested, predominantly. But because, you know, you've cooked with oil in a pan before, and we know that oil loves to come together to form a big globule, the same thing happens with the fats that we ingest, right? right? So by the time it gets to the first part of the small intestines, the duodenum, it's just a big fat globule that needs to be cut up and broken down so big, it can be absorbed. A big absorbed. fatberg. Yeah, a fatberg. Like an iceberg, I assume. That's right. getting... Yeah, okay. They not find those not a Mark Se- Wahlberg They find those <laughs> in
2: sewage systems where that's just big... Globules of fat. Do they? So therefore, we've got to break that uh, fatberg up. That's right. And how do we do that?
0: Okay, so by the time the fat gets in from the stomach to the duodenum, yep. it stimulates these cells on the wall of the duodenum called enteroendocrine cells. They release two important hormones. What are they?
2: CCK. Which is? Um, cholecystokinin. Yep. And Morning Fresh liquid stimulator. <laughs> uh, Detergent t- stimulator.
0: That's CCK, oh, right? Okay. Uh, Cholecystokinone. And the other one's secretin, Okay. which... I knew I was wrong. Sounds like a real basic name, right? Secretin. But that's something you would come up with. That's the first hormone ever discovered. Really? That's why it had that name, because it was secreted. Oh, wonderful. Anyway, so what these two hormones do, particularly CCK... Tells the
2: gallbladder to contract. Yep. Out out of the gallbladder comes the bile, which was made by the liver, but stored in the gallbladder.
0: And bile's made up of bile salts, cholesterol, and water.
2: Yep. And so this shoots down into the duodenum um, with a bit of um, fluid from the pancreas.
0: Well, the fluid from the pancreas or the pancreatic juice is also getting released because both CCK and secretin also travel to the pancreas. So the pancreas releases the juices and that includes the enzymes to break down proteins and carbs, but the enzymes that also break down fats called lipases. And another thing that comes out is bicarbonate. And bicarbonate neutralizes any acid coming from the stomach but also allows for the lipases to work properly. Sure, You need a basic environment like the environment you live in. We need a basic environment that allows to chop these fats up. So first thing that that happens, bile comes in and because you said it's a detergent... Like, Like morning fresh. Like morning fresh. Hopefully our American listeners have morning fresh.
2: Anyway, detergent. Okay. Washing up detergent. It
0: breaks the big glo- globules into smaller, more manageable pieces. Okay, yep. Right. And then...
2: Emulsifies. Did you say that? No, that's a good okay, term. Emulsifies.
0: So these emulsification droplets we could use. So
2: much smaller. Now the lipase can act on it.
0: Little sciss- Molecular scissors chops, is the lipase.
2: Chops it up into fatty acids and a glycerol with a single fatty acid, which yeah. is a monoglyceride. That's
0: right. So it chops two of the three fatty acids off the triglyceride. And so you've got free fatty acids now. You've got monoglyceride uh, and cholesterol. Okay. Right? They're the main things now floating around because the phospholipids, they had their, yep. they had their um, fatty acids chopped off as well.
2: And fat-soluble vitamins. Yes. A, D, E, K. Deca. D, E, K, A. Okay. doesn't matter so what water. So combines those all into a, a bundle?
0: Yes. Yeah, so the, the bile salts surround all these. And then the bowel salts now allow for this sort of bundle of f- fat and fat-soluble substances to be absorbed into the enterocyte, okay. which is the cell of the intestines. And
2: what's this little globule thing called? Mycel? Miscel? Michelle. Michelle? The, the Beatles sang about it.
0: Oh, Michelle, my bell. Yeah. And so now you've got in the enterocyte...
2: Which I think is 50 times smaller than the initial fat droplet. The, what is? The miscell.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is after the bile salts and yeah, yeah. the lipases.
2: Okay, so now it gets spat into the enterocyte, which yep. is the cells of the intestine. That's right. Um, these get, get kind of broken apart. Well, it's just
0: because the bile doesn't move through. Oh, okay. So the bile stays in the lumen of the intestines and sort of just pushes in the fatty acids, monoglyceride and cholesterol into the enterocyte. And here, they get repackaged back into triglycerides. Okay, so So the
2: smooth endoplasmic reticulum puts it back into TAGS.
0: Tricyglycerides. Yeah,
2: and then adds a bit of protein to it from the rough ER. Yep. And then it gets pushed into another bundle, which we call a column micron. Well, the Golgi apparatus does this. Okay, does the packaging. And then it spits it out, but not into the blood, like the other two macronutrients, but into the lymphatics. Yes. Or the lacteal. And then that will go into bigger... Lympho vessels and then go all lympho the way up, <laughs> all the way up to kind of the brachiocephalic subclavian vein, and then it jumps in to the thoracic duct. I think it's called, and then now it goes into the blood. So now we have the chylomicron in the blood.
0: Yes, said so that very quick. The chylomicron is filled with triglycerides, yep. cholesterol, uh, and some fat-soluble
2: stuff and proteins
0: and proteins. Yeah. And all the chylomicron does is now that it's in the bloodstream, it can deliver these tricyglycerides to muscle and adipose tissue, yep. wherever it, it is necessary, drops it off. And once it drops it off, it becomes a chylomicron remnant, which has low amounts of fatty acids, but high amounts of cholesterol. And then that goes back to the liver for processing. Okay, brilliant. So this is what's happening after you eat that burger. Yep. But what's happening if you haven't eaten for six to ten hours, maybe, and your muscle tissues and adipose tissue need some fat, I guess the
2: liver has to do something else for it.
0: It does indeed. It needs to make its own version of a chylomicron. Remember, okay. the chylomicron was made by the intestines, yeah. but now the liver's making something that's similar called a lipoprotein.
2: Okay. And
0: it makes one called a VLDL, a very low-density lipoprotein. Okay. And that's basically like the chylomicron. It has fatty acids and cholesterol. A little bit of protein. A little bit of protein. That's what's called lipoprotein. Yeah. But it's got more fatty acids compared to cholesterol. Okay. And that's why it's called a very low density lipoprotein. Okay. So that jumps out of the liver. What's it do?
2: Goes back into the blood. Yep. Travels around the blood, does something similar to the column micron, just drops off fatty acids and cholesterols to cells and certain tissues that need it in high abundance, like adipose cells. So it's fat cells, yep. muscle cells, and probably some organs like endocrine organs that need fat or cholesterol to make its hormones, like mm. the gonads, um, the adrenal cortex to make things like aldosterone, cortisol, um, and, and then the, the adrogen, androgens? androgens. Yep. Uh, and so whilst it's doing this, it's losing a lot of fat.
0: Fatty acids, yeah.
2: Yeah. And then it's becoming...
0: Far more fatty acids than cholesterol. Yeah, right? and
2: it's kind of getting closer to... Not closer, but there's... Uh, uh, a greater portion of, or well, there's more protein to the fat now, or closer to it, and so we change the name from VLDLs to maybe IDLs, intermediate density lipoproteins. Yep, and even to the point where it might get to low density lipoproteins, yeah. which is LDLs. So this is
0: like a, a a trailer with its load on the back not tied down properly.
2: So this is like Mike driving his pickup truck yep. or, or ute that we call it in Australia without it being covered. Yeah. And he's driving to the ute with all this rubbish and by the time he's got the ute, there's nothing left. It's just all along the roadside yep. that he's driven and so it's started to form plaques and so forth That's right on the road, which okay. is generally why the LDLs is considered a bad effect. But Kevin will talk about this more scientifically than we have just then.
0: Yes, so we've spoken about the VLDLs, the IDLs and the LDLs and the very last one... Before we introduce Kevin, is the HDLs, HDLs the, and the high liver, density? Liver
2: makes that one, yep. Which is kind of like me in my pickup truck that I have to follow Mike. And I have to go and pick up all the rubbish he's just dropped off. So the HDL is considered, or the high density lipoprotein, so it's got a greater amount of protein. Yeah. So I think it's close to fifty-fifty, right?
0: And uh, and the main point here is cholesterol.
2: Yeah. And so it's going along and kind of picking things up along the way to to hopefully pull that stuff... Well, what's that, it picking up? All the stuff that you dropped off.
0: The cholesterol, yeah. mainly. Yeah, That's what we're going to talk about here because Kevin is going to talk about LDL and HDL levels and how HDLs tend to
2: pick up the cholesterol and bring it back to the liver. And so what certain foods might be good for that? Yeah, what
0: certain foods might be good for that? And, then, and then LDLs sort of do the opposite and drop yeah. it off.
2: And what foods also cause that one.
0: That's right. And I think that this is where
2: And then blood tests, so when you go to a the blood get your total cholesterol done and they say this is your total cholesterol, this is your HDL level, your LDL levels, this is the ratio, you're going to ha- potentially have some heart problems if you don't rectify this. He'll talk to us about whether this is true or not. Let's introduce Kevin.
0: So now we're joined with Dr. Kevin Clat Dr. Kevin Klatt is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine. He has a PhD from Cornell University in Molecular Nutrition and is a registered dietitian. He's also the Young Career Editor of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Kev, thank you for joining us. How are you?
1: Good. Happy to be here. Uh, You know, I'm in Texas. We had a little bit of a storm last week, but other than that, things are going pretty well.
0: Got your power on, got your internet sorted. (laughs)
1: No pipes burst. That's all that matters.
0: Perfect. Well, look, thank you again for joining us. This is uh, a really, uh, probably complex topic which everyone talks about. Uh, and I think everyone talks about it as though they know what they're talking about. Uh, but I have a feeling that a lot of people probably don't know what they're talking about. And you're the expert here. And I hope that you can clear a whole bunch of stuff up for us and everybody else. Uh, We're talking about dietary fats, and I think the first place we should start is just by asking you what are the different types of dietary fats?
1: Sure. So dietary fats, uh, as you probably know from your AMP classes, are uh, just long chains of carbon, and we classify them as saturated or unsaturated fatty acids, depending on whether they have double bonds. So saturated fats are just long strings of carbon that are single bonds between them, and then the unsaturated fatty acids have at least one double bond. If it does have one double bond, we call it a monounsaturated fatty acid, as you might expect, very <laughs> clever naming system. Uh, and then we have polyunsaturated fatty acids. So that's more than one. And that can be anywhere from two to typically about six double bonds within a uh, fatty acid. And then within the polyunsaturated fatty acids, we have a couple that we de- determine or deem to be uh, essential fatty acids. So there's omega-3 fatty acids and there's omega-6 fatty acids, and there's two that we get in our diet that are essential. That's alpha-linolenic acid and linoleic acid. Is the omega-3 and omega-6 respectively.
0: So, so, so we don't create those ourselves. We have to get them from our diet.
1: Correct. We lack the enzymes to make them, but plants are able. To, plants have the enzymes that are able to make them, and we can eat those.
2: And where does the term omega come from? Is that just the positioning or the shape of the the bond double bond?
1: yeah omega refers to so like you have omega-6s and omega-3s and that's where the first double bond is coming from the methyl end so fat free fatty acids have a carboxylic acid end and a methyl end so if you count back from the methyl ends that's where you know after the third carbon you get that uh, first double bond there but it doesn't necessarily tell you how many double bonds total are in it so you can have omega-3s with only two double bonds and you can have omega-3s with six
2: okay and so just really quickly because this is obviously could go on forever but With the monos, with the saturated, with the polys, with the omegas, can you give us a quick example of each where you would find them in a food?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, with saturated, we have uh, both plant and animal sources, and I I guess I should say for most foods, you have a mix of these sort of fats. We kind of classify them whether they're predominantly saturated, predominantly mono, and predominantly polys. Um, So, saturated fatty acids are typically thought of; they're solid at room temperature. Okay. Um, So things like your animal fats, like a butter that you can kind of, you know, your grandmom leaves the butter out on the table, it stays solid. Yep. Whereas uh, a monounsaturated fatty acid is like olive oil is liquid at room temperature. Or typical polyunsaturated fatty acids you can think of as corn oil or soy oil or canola. They're also all liquid at room temperature as well. There's also for saturated, we do have plant sources such as uh, coconut oil which is rich in uh, some of the more medium-chain saturated fatty acids, which getting at the question of what are fatty acids and how do we classify them, we also classify them by their length. Um, So there are medium and uh, mostly medium-chain and shorter-chain saturated fatty acids that we talk about in nutrition a lot.
0: But there's long-chain as well, right?
1: Yeah. And
0: And very long-chain.
1: and very long chains, yes. I actually have a random side paper about very long chain omega-3 fatty acids because things started eluding off a gas chromatographer that I didn't expect and uh, one of those cool findings in science that you're just like, I didn't expect that and totally stumble into something.
0: So when we talk about dietary fats, you've highlighted fatty acids for us and you've highlighted the fact that they can be determined in accordance with their bonds and they can also be determined in accordance with their length. Um do they come in regards to as dietary fats? Do they come as free fatty acids or do they come together as something else in our diet?
1: The most common way they come into our diet is as triosylglycerols or triglycerides. Um, so that's where you have a glycerol backbone and then you have uh, esterified fatty acids at the sn one 2, and 3 position of the carbon. Um, but you also get fatty acids. They do exist as free fatty acids in the food um that's not the predominant way necessarily but it also partially depends upon if the fat's gone rancid and other things um and then you also have fatty acids that are in phospholipid species as well so that similarly has a glycerol backbone but the sn3 of a phospholipid species so that third carbon down on glycerol is, has a phosphate and then some sort of head group like choline or ethanolamine Um, But the SN1 and 2 positions are fatty acids as well. And they, during digestion, can get cleaved off and absorbed.
0: So if you have a a glycerol backbone and you're snapping onto three fatty acids, can there be an assortment of any fatty acids? Like, can, can any of them have any bond type, like saturated, unsaturated, for example? And can they be of any length? Can one be a short chain and one be a long chain? Or is there some sort of method to it that it sticks to?
1: In nature, there are enzymatic systems that seem to prefer certain uh, positions over another. So you can have like a saturate at one point, and then a couple saturates, and then maybe one unsaturate. These things can also be forced in a lab, although it's kind of sterically and energetically unfavorable. Um, So we don't fully understand every aspect. And there is a, a large literature, I'm sure, in biophysical chemistry and plants that I don't read that literature all that much about why fats occur the way they occur. Um, the most uh, common example, though, is with phospholipids, like Um You typically have one saturated and one unsaturated. And depending on how it's produced, you often get like one saturated and a species and then one highly unsaturated, like an omega-3, like the ones you find in fish oil.
2: And
0: so when we look at the dietary fats, and now we've sort of spoken about the fatty acids together with glycerol as trisoglycerides, and phospholipids as well as another source. Is cholesterol um, referred to as a type of dietary fat, or is that sort of sits in its own category?
1: Cholesterol falls under the lipid category, which fats fall under. Um, But typically, it's not thought of as a source of fatty acids, although there are cholesterol esters, and that's that you could technically be eating. Um, It's a small contribution to the total fat that you're consuming, but there are, uh, you are able to esterify a fatty acid onto a cholesterol uh, moiety.
0: So the dietary lipids as the umbrella term, that would be the tricyglycerides, free fatty acids, phospholipids, and cholesterol. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you could, in theory, eat bile too. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) true. But I mean, there are other, yeah, I guess phospholipids and then uh, fatty acids and cholesterol are the three major ones that we typically think about with lipids.
0: So in that case, how do we determine the differences between things like tricyglycerides, these sort of transport compartments like LDLs and HDLs, so low-density lipoproteins, high-density lipoproteins, very high-density lipoproteins and so forth, um, and, tricy- you know, and cholesterol. I think in a lot of people's minds, they hear these terms and they sort of all blend and merge into one thing and they don't really understand how to delineate in their mind between all of these terms. So are you able to, um, in your own time, tell us the difference between cholesterol, trisoglycerides, low-density lipoproteins, high-density lipoproteins... <laughs> And whatever else you think we need to sort of tease apart from from all these.
1: Yeah, I think the first thing to think about is that these are what defines a lipid. And it's not basically it's something that's not very readily miscible in water. And so that becomes presents an immediate problem for your body. You can think about your blood. It's quite aqueous and you need to transport fat around. So from the time you eat it and then... You can imagine there is exchange of fat and other lipid-type molecules between tissues that they have what they need to meet their metabolic demands. So the way evolution has occurred is that we have what we call lipoproteins. So you have basically a hydrophobic core of things like um, cholesterol esters and triglycerides that are circulating within a lipoprotein. And then you have proteins and free cholesterol and phospholipids on the outer layer Uh, And phospholipids have, um, they're like amphipathic. So you get some side of it that's fat soluble and a side of it that's water soluble. So you basically make this core package that can can exist in water and not like clump up all together and uh, serve as a carrier for fats um, and, and for other lipids. So I think that's you know, and once you have that sort of, these are lipoproteins, their role is to carry lipids around the body, you can kind of start to break them out into their different types. So we have chylomicrons, and that is typically contains the dietary fat that you've just eaten, and the intestine packages them and exports it out for tissues to get their first pass at the fatty acids that are in them. And then you get uh, a lot of these uh, remnant lipoproteins end up being taken up by the liver, and the liver repackages things and spits it back out. And in that repackaging and spitting back out, you get very low density lipoproteins. And they're very low density. You can imagine um, if you pour oil on top of water, oil is less dense than water. And so it's a lower density, and it floats. Um, So we call them very low density lipoproteins because they contain more of the triglyceride core triglycerides and oil are very similar. And then as the VLDL or very low density lipoprotein is delipidated, it starts to uh, get less dense and just yeah. becomes a low density lipoprotein. So these are sort of artificial categories we have defined them in to help our brains understand it. It's actually a very dynamic process of VLDLs are being converted into LDLs, which technically an intermediate of IDLs there to intermediate density lipoproteins. And then, um, yeah, and then triglycerides and cholesterol. So we talk about those often in in the health world, and that is something where you're actually measuring the amount of cholesterol in the blood as a total cholesterol. So the sum of the cholesterol that is in all of those lipoproteins, Um, and then you have things like LDL cholesterol. So that's taking typically by centrifugation methods you are separating out the different types of lipoproteins by density and then you measure the cholesterol content of those specific sort of fractions. Um, And then if you measure the triglycerides in your blood, that's measuring the amount of triglyceride within the lipoproteins.
0: And so what about the HDLs? How are they different to the uh, LDLs?
1: So they don't have as much of the fatty acids within them. And HDL's primary role in the body is thought to be to facilitate reverse cholesterol transport, so getting cholesterol from tissues back to the liver to then be further processed.
0: And so, and it, so, no. HDL
1: we typically think of as being high, being good because it's getting serving that role of making sure that peripheral tissues don't have excess cholesterol. But I have to say off the top of the bat, HDL cholesterol and interpretations of it, and and uh, Causal attributions to health are uh, quite uh, well. I guess we're just unsure. <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't actually. It's very hard to study it in humans, and, and it's easier to study in experimental animal models. But they have very different cholesterol systems than we do.
0: So, would you? Sorry, Matt. Just quickly, would you say that um, to summarize what what you've stated? You've got chylomicrons, which is sort of like the first lipoprotein package that you create straight after eating. You're in the absorptive state, all the fats you've just taken in, we're going to package it up and distribute it around the body. Then you've got remnants after you've distributed all the fatty acids or tricyglycerides you've needed to give to the fat tissue or muscle tissue, and this remnant chylomicron then goes back to the liver. liver can do its processing with, with it, whatever it wants to do. Then in a more fasting state, a time in which the tissues may need some fatty acids or tricyglycerides, the liver is going to package up these very low-density lipoproteins, which are similar to chylomicrons, and they've got a bunch of tricyglycerides and cholesterol in them, goes out to the body hands off all the triglycerides and fatty acids. And then as it continues to, to sort of do this, it goes into an intermediate state and then into a...
1: I do want to clarify first though, as the, the VLDL gets delipidated and goes to IDL, then goes to LDL. Yeah. HDL is sort of its own separate class okay. that of lipoprotein that's secreted largely by the liver, but also the intestine. And actually... Is more defined by different proteins on the core or the, that sort of surround that core. Um, so there's, you often might hear of ApoB Apo B and ApoA, mm. and those are the names of the proteins that tag these lipoproteins. Um, but the things that are really linked are VLDL and LDL levels, as VLDL uh, is D. Lipidated as it's traveling around uh, plasma, it, it be, gives off those triglycerides from lipoprotein lipase activity, and then you get an LDL.
2: Okay. So, so with the uh, VLDL, um, this is the first kind of trip around the, the bloodstream to offload fats into certain cells. How does it know where to go? Like, is there a particular location, or is it just random, or or there are certain receptors that it knows to kind of lock onto?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's complex receptors available for these. Um, you often hear of um, the low-density lipoprotein receptor as one that has different affinities for these. Um, but it's also tissue expression of lipoprotein lipase okay. um, that is actually hydrolyzing the fatty acids to be then be taken up as free fatty acids and, and used by the tissue locally that sort of determines w- what portion of the VLDL the uh, tissue is, well, I guess, is is Distributed it ultimately to other tissues. Like if you were to track or label these, um, there's a number of factors that would influence which tissues see the products. But a lot of it has to do with their receptor abundance for these lipoproteins and their activity of um, the lipoprotein
2: lipases. Okay, and so when it's unloading, what's this term you use? Delipidation or something? Is that the term you use? Yeah, yeah. So as it's there's a lot of ways. You can say it. Yeah, as it's doing this, so it's offloading its triglycerides into into and then broken up into glycerol and or monoglyceride monoglyc- and free fatty acids to like muscle cells and adipocytes what about the cholesterol part because presumably every cell needs cholesterol for its membrane does it does every cell just grab it as it moves through how does this kind of happen
1: Well, typically the lipoproteins can be endocytosed um, and then the the whole core can be taken up and then uh, degraded in the ly- lysosome and by other cellular compartments and then upta- the components can be uptaken by the cell. And then tissues can also make their own cholesterol as well. Okay. Okay.
0: So the HDL, the high-density lipoprotein, um, did you say that the liver makes the HDL? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, it, and it's, it's a separate product to the VLDL and LDL. Um, so the liver's making this as a collection method to get cholesterol and bring it back to the liver. Is that right? That's
1: one of its functions. I think there are big debates about whether the, why the liver evolved to make HDLs, but it's, its major role uh, appears to be in bringing cholesterol back to the liver. It also has broader functions. You know, people ascribe anti-inflammatory functions and there's even some thought that it has anti-microbial functions to it as well. Uh, but its its major role that it's been studied for is its ability to facilitate reverse cholesterol transport. So that's taking lipid from, or cholesterol from uh, peripheral tissues, so non-liver tissues, and bringing it back to the liver. The liver is the major site of cholesterol excretion from the body and okay. sort of a major regulator of um, whole body cholesterol balance because the primary way we get rid of cholesterol is through bile. Mm. Um, and so you, you your body uses... Uh, it's a major way uh, that you get rid of cholesterol. So you're you often ex- you lose bile acids in the feces essentially, and that's one way to net uh, get the uh, reduce the level of cholesterol in the body. And that's actually a way that diet influences circulating cholesterol levels, is by binding to bile acids in the gut and ultimately leading to their excretion.
0: So what's all this chat about the ratio between these HDLs and LDLs, for example? Um, obviously. We're talking about LDLs dropping things off, HDLs picking things up. Obviously, that's a very um, simplistic simplistic way of explaining it. But how should people understand um, the importance of this ratio, if it is important at all, and what it truly means?
1: Yeah, there are a ton of ratios. I think you (laughs) often hear about things like non-HDL cholesterol. And so basically, these are all just uh, simple or people are trying to use Find simple ways to understand cardiovascular disease risk is, is primarily what folks are talking about here, and we think from the existing evidence that it's the total number of lipoprotein particles, uh, particularly ApoB-containing lipoprotein particles. That is the combination of your LDLs and your. Uh, I guess triglyceride-containing lipoproteins that are that are contribute to risk, but we don't often measure the total number of apoB's. So the easiest way to do that is to you know express it like total cholesterol minus HDL as sort of your your non-HDL cholesterols and look at risk that way. But classically, I think folks are just uh, often looking at LDL on its own to look at risk, um, and then you know also folks have long debated about what role triglyceride rich uh, lipoproteins play in atherogenesis and or the the start of atherosclerosis and the plaque buildup um but yeah uh, are there other ratios you were specifically thinking thinking about i
2: think usually like you said in the cardiovascular space or the context we usually do total cholesterol then we look at the comparison of hdl to ldl and if the LDL is predominantly higher to the HDL, then it's a higher risk of you know atherosclerosis and so forth. So I guess what Mike's asking is, is that kind of true in, in your area? Yeah, so
1: I, I think there are big debates about this because ratios can often obscure absolute values at the same time. Mm. I think this happens in all of science. You get mm. big debates about, okay, well, does the absolute value matter, or does the ratio predict it better? and what are the exceptions to the rules and saying that, because uh, you could you could certainly have a worrisome LDL, but also a very high HDL that might obscure that ratio and lead you to decide not to treat a patient that you might otherwise want to treat. Um, ca- captured in all of this is that we measure HDL typically by HDL C, HDL cholesterol, and that's measuring the amount of cholesterol in the HDL particle. And it's true that in a lot of epidemiological studies, high HDL cholesterol is associated with better health. But whether that is causal is A big uh, area of debate. And there have been several uh, genetic variants associated with very high HDL cholesterol, like 70 80 range, that are actually associated with higher risk. Um, And so that is thought to be that they're more of a marker of some dysfunctional HDL. So it's the HDL world is one that, if there are folks listening that want to (laughs) go into research, uh, it's a very hot area because there has yet to be a genetic variant that raises HDL cholesterol um, independent of other lipoproteins that appears to confer benefit, and there's not been a drug that raises HDL cholesterol that produces a, a reduction in cardiovascular events. So this is a good area for folks mm. also who want to get into epidemiology to yeah. understand the complexities of interpreting uh, some of these risk factors. but. The thing that we think is most causal and most important is lowering the total number of apolipoprotein B particles, uh, which requires advanced uh, methods like NMR to actually measure the number of particles. That's super interesting.
2: So let's partly simplify this and just assume that HDL is good and LDL is not so good. Um are certain dietary fats more likely to predispose you into one? So are certain fats in your diet more likely to improve your HDL level or go the opposite way and bump up your LDLs?
1: Yeah, so there, this has been uh, the subject of hundreds of controlled feeding studies over the past 40, 50, 60 years, um, basically trying to understand how fats influence cholesterol levels and it's a it's a nuance of nutrition studies. Um, it's it's hard to study because you can you know randomize somebody to like a statin or a placebo and then look at okay did the statin lower LDL. But if you randomize somebody to a high saturated fat diet, if you don't uh, if you do that you either increase the total number of calories, and then so you have a confounding issue of is it because they ate more calories or is it because they ate more calories from saturated fat. So to do that you have to find it compared to an isocaloric replacement Um, but then that comes into an issue of you have three classes three major classes of macronutrients protein carbohydrate and then fats Um, and then you have to compare all the different types of fats relative to one another and ideally relative to protein and carbohydrate to get a feel for what is making things go up and what is making things go down because if i compare a high saturated fat diet to a high monounsaturated fat diet, did the monos make it go down or did the sats make it go up? Mm -hmm. Um, And then so really it took decades of controlled feeding work to compare saturated to monounsaturated to different types of polyunsaturated to carbohydrate. Um, And there's some work done relative to protein to get a feel for what what does what. Um, And I think it's really important for folks to remember that, particularly if you're interested in nutrition, that when you compare macronutrients, uh, a two-arm study never does it. it. You never make the inferences that you, you want to be able to make. So, but the summary of that, like very long literature base, is basically if you think of carbohydrate as being neutral, if you replace carbohydrate with saturated fat, you get an increase in uh, LDL cholesterol, and that's predominantly for saturated fats that are rich in twelve carbon, fourteen carbon, and sixteen carbon saturated fats. So that's like dairy fat and meat fats predominantly. Um, if you compare carb- replace carbohydrate with uh, a C eighteen, which is stearic acid, it really doesn't do all that much. Stearic acid is quite high in chocolate, so if you were to compare butter to cocoa butter, um, butter would have a larger effect on the LDL cholesterol levels. And then, if you compare carbohydrate to monounsaturated fatty acids, the most predominant one is an eighteen carbon um, fatty acid that then we call eighteen one. Um, because it has one double bond, that lowers cholesterol a tiny bit, but it's not a large effect. And then if you replace carbohydrate with omega-6 um, rich vegetable oils, that tends to lower LDL relatively substantially. So you get the biggest effect on LDL cholesterol by, by replacing your saturated fatty acids with your vegetable oils pretty much.
0: Okay. So you're also saying it's quite complex. <laughs> too.
1: Just a little bit, you know. <laughs> So anytime you want to do anything with fatty acids or macronutrients yeah. and nutrition, it's like so many pairwise comparisons that you're just like, ah, I
2: give up. My original question was too simple. <laughs> and and humans. It's easier with with mice.
1: Yeah. So I should say all of this is largely determined from relatively short feeding studies you know typically two weeks to six months Uh we have a couple that are longer term but we don't have all the longer term ones we don't have all of those comparisons relative to one another um and in animal models these things often hold true which gives us some confidence but the you get it gets very complex animal models based off of one differences in the species mm. uh, types of lipoprotein metabolism, like mice are a very HDL dominant species and uh. don't have as much LDL, VLDL. Um, and then the, it also gets complicated because the amount of cholesterol in the background diet in an animal model seems to interact with the type of fat as well. And if you don't have some amount of cholesterol in the background, but the right amount, you don't see the the fat lipoprotein effect. And in the human literature, there's not a, as many studies that kind of tighter different levels of dietary cholesterol with different levels of dietary fat. Cause you can imagine that becomes a, you know, a huge factorial study at the end of the day. Yeah,
0: So I'm, I'm going to take us back a couple of steps and ask a, sure. a, a pretty, what I think to be a rudimentary question, but I know it's not. Um, is the whole idea here about, you know, uh, LDLs and HDLs, the fact that LDLs are dropping things off and hdls are bringing things back to the liver like to to really oversimplify for people is this the concept that people are having in their head about good versus bad which i think everyone here would agree that they're terrible terms to use but is the whole good effect of hdls supposedly the fact they're taking things back cholesterol uh, predominantly back to the liver and the LDLs is they're just dropping things off. They're just that willy nilly, they're dropping off fatty acids and cholesterol all around the body. And the dropping off of this may happen at the endothelia of blood vessels, for example, and this could lead to inflammatory responses and therefore atherosclerosis. Is that, is that the simplistic way of explaining it?
1: I think that is the way, uh, yes, that's a very simplistic way of understanding it and then i i recommend people who want to do a phd in this go further and realize why that is so overly simplistic as yeah, to yeah. almost be
0: wrong but yeah. it's mostly right
2: okay. at the same time yes and i think but, it is but that's very perfect. complicated
0: that's a perfect point to make is that you know it's it's an oversimplification of a process where you in order for people to try and grasp it who aren't within the field it's it's one of the only ways you can really explain it but it's so simplified that it is wrong because it removes all the detail and minutiae of exactly what's going on and all the complex interactions. And I think it's sort of at the core of why people have all these arguments is people who aren't doing... You keep saying it, you know, do some research in it, become an epidemiologist, you know, become a PhD researcher so that you can understand these details. Because um, I think... It, the one thing I, f- I feel sorry about... Um, uh, dietitians and researchers within this type of field is that because everybody eats, the layperson thinks they know everything about health effects of specific diets and macronutrients and so forth. So you're going to get people who have never done research in their life thinking that they, they could sit down and have an argument with you about these details um, because they eat. And it worked for them. And it worked for them. Well, at least in their eyes, yeah. it worked for them. Um, so I I just wanted to iterate that point. Um, and we could probably get to it in a sec when we start talking a little bit more about some some studies. Um, but I just want to jump into a little bit about... Um, a little bit more about statins. Would you be able to just... Can I ask a
2: question before yes, that? Yes, it's yes. It's actually two-pronged with statins in, in part. So... We know again. We'll sit in the cardiovascular space, cardiovascular health. So we know that um, putting fat into blood vessel walls is not good for your heart. You know, you could potentially get a heart attack, or your brain get a stroke, or in your blood vessels in your leg, kidneys. So you get vascular disease. Uh, we know there's certain risk factors that increase the lay down, the laying down of fats into plaques. You know, like diabetes, hypertension, smoking, things like this. Uh, now, my father recently had to have a bypass surgery for his heart. Now, he, in terms of the risk factors for atherosclerosis, is, is super low. You know, his BMI is in a normal range. He's never smoked, hardly drinks, exercises a lot, has a good diet. But the, the dietitian, sorry, the cardiologist said to him, well, you've got a genet- genetic risk of you're more likely to delayed, to lay down LDLs into your blood vessels. I guess my question is, firstly... Um, how would you be genetically predisposed to do this more so, and I guess now, for me being a um being his son <laughs> offspring <laughs> offspring I've also got that risk, and I've already been shown to have some plaques in my heart, so now I've been put on a statin, so how would a statin work to kind of mitigate this laying down process?
0: Yeah that
1: is um a very loaded question <laughs> there are some there's actually a great paper i should send to you guys that talks about i guess the the pathogenesis of atherogenesis that walks through from the lipoprotein particle because the lipoprotein particle in and of itself um there's debates about whether it is inherently atherogenic or whether it, it definitely in a lot of in vitro models it needs further modification um, there are big debates about in vivo how relevant that how necessary that is But you have these particles, but they have to somehow invade, particularly in in larger arteries around the heart, like they have to invade the intima. They have to be retained there. They have to start to form uh, plaque. um, And that typically happens by macrophages taking them up and turning into what we call foam cells. And then the atherosclerotic plaque kind of builds out. So you can imagine um, there are a number and there are more factors than even that, that that come into play. And so we often talk about these things of sort of trying to get the, the first hit. And I often kind of refer for helping students understand it, kind of think about it as like if there's a car crash where it's like, yeah, you're never going to stop everybody from texting and driving and being distracted or whatnot. But if you reduce the number of cars on the road, you're definitely going to reduce the severity of the pileup. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what taking reducing the LDL is. It's reducing the total number of things that, that have a risk of being retained and then contributing to plaque formation. But there are tons of things downstream of just LDL particle number that uh, modify the risk of atherogenesis and then the risk of that, um, you know, actually going on and causing a heart attack. So that's an awesome analogy. I really
0: like that analogy.
1: Okay, cool. (laughs) I mean, it itself is an oversimplification, but I think it's it's helpful for folks thinking about, um, you know, you could, you could kind I think a lot of folks do get lost in, okay, well, let's come up with every single way that, you know, the why the cars are crashing. And yeah. it's like, well, you know, and there are big debates about do I have to lower my LDL? And of yeah. course there are other factors that might make a pile up, you know, on, on a car, on the road uh, worse. But in general, lowering LDL tends to be helpful. There are other lipoproteins though that contribute to this risk. Like you might've heard of LP little a, which is sort of like, an it's very similar to LDL, but it has an additional mod- chemical modifications. Um, and that's something that is diet from what we know doesn't have a huge effect on it, but genetics, um, tend to determine your levels of it. And I think it got a lot of press when the, um, uh, the trainer on the biggest loser here in America had, uh, a heart attack, uh, his name's Bob something.
0: Oh. Did Bob have a heart um, attack? Did he?
1: I think Bob Harper. Yeah. Wow. He had a he had a heart attack and, and he ended up having, I think he went, went kind of public with having high LP little a, um, and there's a whole LP little a foundation. Um, there's a lot of interest now in how inflammation plays a role yeah. and whether we can stop inflammation. And there's a long history of using anti-inflammatory drugs to lower cardiovascular events. And I think there's only one that has kind of clearly done it. It's a monoclonal antibody called canakinumab. Um, but yeah, I mean, because inflammation, that's yeah, its own it's a separate 50, thing. 50 podcast episodes, yeah, game yeah, yeah. <laughs> about so how complex the immune system is. But yeah, there there are all these modifying factors that start to come into play. The health of endothelial progenitor
2: cells.
0: Yeah. Something uh, wrong. It's just, it says five minutes
2: left in your scheduled meeting time. And I'm not sure why it says that. Um, it might keep going. It might keep going. It may just be because you put for an hour, did you? Yeah.
0: Oh, that could just be it. But um, it, it doesn't matter. If it if it drops out, we'll just dial you back in. So that's not a problem. Sure. Um, I, I did want to ask you uh, uh, to reiterate again. So I really liked your analogy about, um, you know, just reducing the amount of cars on the road is going to reduce the amount of car accidents that are going to occur, even though there's various other things that are coming into play to cause the car accident. Um, so can you just reiterate again, w- when people are told by their cardiologist for example or dietitian about um, reducing certain types of fat intake what again is the specific um, point in regards to saturated and unsaturated and LDLs what's that relationship with saturated unsaturated and LDLs is there one is it is it a simple one or is it again just like everything else extremely complex
1: it is complex, but the simplistic take on it is that saturates tend to raise LDL cholesterol, and that unsaturated fatty acids, particularly the uh, polyunsaturated rich vegetable oils, tend to lower LDL cholesterol the most. Um, and that that from that, we hope that you know that actually reduces cardiovascular events. Um, there are only a, f- a handful of trials, uh, a lot of them are much older, that have actually tested whether, they often tested whether replacing saturated fat sources, typically dairy and animal meats, sources of saturated fat, replacing them with things like soybean oil was the most common one used, uh, reduced cardiovascular events. And the data points to yes, but you can imagine in doing a very long, several year-long uh, Randomized controlled trial, changing diet. Um, they relied on institutionalized populations like mental health hospitals, mm-hmm. um, and the other dietary changes occurred in the background. And it, they're very complicated to interpret, and not some of them aren't randomized appropriately. So most of what we give recommendations off of is measuring the more short-term studies where fats influence these um, circulating lipoprotein levels that are are related to risk. Um, so saturates. Tend to make things go up, uh, with the exception of uh, the 18 carbon rich uh, sources of fat, like like cocoa butter, don't raise LDL quite as much. And then uh, mono and polyunsaturated fatty acids tend to lower. So just with to that, th- I should say that though, real quick, that we think of the omega-3, like fish oil, as being uh, a polyunsaturated.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: And those those tend to lower triglycerides, but not LDL.
0: So do we know what this mechanism is? What, why is it that um, the saturated rays, unsaturated, generally speaking, do we know what the actual mechanism is that's doing this process?
1: So they, they generally influence LDL receptor activity. We think mostly at the level of the liver. Um, so the, basically it's the clearance from the plasma Um, it's often called the fractional catabolic rate, is influenced by saturated and unsaturated fatty acids. But the mechanism by which how do saturated fatty acids actually influence that LDL receptor activity, uh, that is very questionable, I would say. Um, There's different animal models that can point in different directions, and we don't have a great, you know, your ideal way would be to come up with what you think the mechanism is and then experimentally block that. and, And we haven't developed a way to do that necessarily, but there are, the main theories are that maybe the, sat- the you know these fatty acids are actually getting incorporated into the membrane, the cell membrane, including the plasma membrane, which is where things like the LDL receptors sit. So there's a thought that maybe they're changing the fluidity of the membrane, and then they influence the protein uh, activity. But then, you know, it could be other mechanisms as well that we don't fully know about. Some folks have thought about, do they influence the amount of free cholesterol in the cell, which is really what the the cell senses the amount of free cholesterol and decides whether to pull in more from the plasma um, or not, in the case of the liver, or make more of their own. So it is, which is not a great answer other than to say we, we know the LDL receptor activity is changing. And then when you eat more unsaturates, uh, you are taking more up from the plasma. And when you eat more saturates, you tend to not take up quite as much from the plasma. But the really outstanding question, too, is what the effect of these things is on bile acid metabolism and total, like, whole body flux of cholesterol out. Uh, and I think there is some ongoing work to study that because one of the major routes to get rid of cholesterol, as I mentioned before, is by converting it to bile acids, which you can then lose in the stool.
0: So, uh, another simple ish question. Uh, we know that the body has glucose receptors and receptors for proteins, and we know that there's lipoprotein receptors, but are there just, are there fatty acid receptors? Yes. There are, okay. There
1: are, there are G-protein coupled receptors that combine to free fatty acids. Um, there are Receptors such as I actually work in an area of nuclear receptors, um, so these are our trans major transcription factors within the cell that have been shown to recognize a number of different lipid classes, including phosphatidylcholines mm. and other phospholipids. So fatty acids could, in theory, influence the production of specific types of uh, phospholipids and then bind these nuclear receptors. That's actually a paper that i just put up a preprint for about how lauric acid the c12 influences the production of a phosphatidylcholine that binds a uh, nuclear receptor and influences gene expression. so that's okay. one way that this could occur. um
0: so that adds yeah, that, that adds a lot of detail that, that adds a lot of complex, uh, even more complexity uh, yeah, because yeah. you know you look yeah. at the obviously the macromolecules uh, and the macronutrients proteins fats carbs you look at carbs And, you know, the simplest forms are going to be glucose, fructose, galactose, right? And galactose, fructose sort of turn into glucose a lot of the time and pretty simple-ish. But then you look at, when we have a look at fats, for example, you've got, I don't know how many types of fatty acids there are. And if you're saying there are fatty acid receptors and maybe each fatty acid may have a specific type of receptor and it may have a specific effect you've got so much complexity added here because there's so many different types of fatty acids. Do you think this is actually playing a role, the fact that there are so many different types of fatty acids and they may have very different effects through receptor interactions or even they go down and have nuclear effects and just DNA transcription effects straight away without having to be, like you said, G-coupled protein on the cell surface. It may just go straight in and change the transcriptional activity.
1: Yeah, so I mean, there are examples of fatty acids that both bind, uh, or activate G protein coupled receptors and nuclear receptors. So it gets yeah. very, very complex. Some of them are promiscuous. Some of them have a, a pr- seem to have a preferred receptor. Um, I mean, one of the I guess one of the most simple ways to think about this is you also have free fatty acid receptors in the oral cavity, and that that's part of thought to be part of the way that um, foods that are fatty can. Give you sort of a sense of flavor and taste associated with oh. it, and that's a, 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 complicated thing in the sort of taste sensory world about how whether you know there's a fatty acid taste necessarily, but those receptors have been shown to be expressed uh, throughout the oral cavity, and you do have a lingual lipase that can start to liberate some of the start to er, the early digestion of fatty acids and release some free fatty acids. So. They're, they're all over the body in different organs at different levels, mm. and whether they see those fatty acids or not vary. Um, in the nuclear receptor world, nuclear receptors are expressed in different tissue compartments as well, often in cell-type specific manners, um, so that you could, in theory, change the fat in the body and be affecting signaling and transcription in cell-type specific ways, in tissue-specific ways, in different compartments. So it gets... Very, very, very complex. Um, yeah. Very, very, very quickly, and this is not even talking about the fact that some of the you know, you I talked about fatty acids influencing membrane structure, but then they also serve as um, substrates for enzymes like the cyclooxygenases, um, where they can produce eicosanoids and other sort of autocrine and paracrine signaling factors as well that influence the immune system. So.
0: The yeah, prostaglandins f- are f- ubiquitous, right? Yeah. They play that role yeah. of mediating inflammation they play a role with kidney perfusion they play a role with gut mucus membrane production and yeah it's all all over the place and you're right it's it's huge huge role there so so in, in saying all this how the hell can anybody be confident that certain fat types and certain fat quantities have a specific effect on health or disease
1: well i mean in some sense the mechanism doesn't matter, right? It's just a matter of linking eating to the the health outcome at play. And I think that is something that we you, know, you ask people. We know metformin is good for diabetes, but you put ten researchers in a room and ask them how metformin works, and you'll get a <laughs> bloodbath. I mean, uh, there's there's probably 15 papers out there all claiming a distinct way in which metformin works, mm-hmm. um, and the mechanism by which it influences hepatic glucose output and lowers diabetes risk, but it, with fats, I think what the, the bigger issue with nutrition is that there is an infinite number of contexts in which you can study fats. So we're talking about like, oh, it's so, you know, just feed them saturated fats. Well, do you feed them saturated fats in the context of a moderate carbohydrate diet, a very high carbohydrate diet, a very low carbohydrate diet? It's so where you're changing the relative amounts of fats and it, relative to other macronutrients, but then you're changing the absolute amount of fat. So I could sit there, you know, I'm, I'm very much talking about the effect of saturated fatty acids relative to other fat types from studies that are mostly done in the context of feeding pretty moderate carbohydrate diets, about 40 to 50% of calories of, from carbs. Um, so it, there is some thought that if you were to feed ketogenic type diets that are 80% of the calories from fat and only 5% from carbohydrates, that you have a totally different metabolic and an endocrine milieu that might influence the effect of these fatty acids on LDL, and that might be make it worse, make it better. We there are very very few studies that actually take a look at this. Um, and obviously, if you're eating a 80% carbohydrate diet, and you are eating you know 15% of calories from protein and only 5% from fat, the the wiggle room you have to start switching macronutrients around is, is you know, 5% of energy, is basically nothing. It's probably not going to have very large effects on lipid proteins.
0: Yeah. So in saying that, if, if we talk about the keto diet, only because so many people do talk about it, um, <laughs> you, you allude to the fact that the evidence pretty much isn't there for it or against it maybe. What would you – so if we talk about firstly – the fact that the keto diet is a way of increasing fats, decreasing carbs to the point in which ketone bodies are formed. And if I'm correct, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, ketone bodies are formed because the body loves, specifically the brain wants glucose. And so glucose is the brain's primary energy source. And when glucose levels are down certain uh, metabolic products of the Krebs cycle start to back up to try and produce some more glucose. But in in doing so, you start to accumulate acetyl-CoA, and when you start to accumulate acetyl-CoA, to simplify things, they snap together to form ketone bodies, and then these ketone bodies can shuttle off to the brain where they can then be turned back into a product similar to glucose that can be used for energy. So, I mean, in my eyes, ketones... And again, I could be wrong. Ketones are just a, a roundabout way of producing a glucose product or energy through that same pathway. Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily understand in my eyes why someone would want to do that diet. I understand in certain conditions, certain types, certain subtypes of childhood, epilepsy, ketosis and uh, ketone diets, uh, keto-based diets have shown some benefit symptomatically. Um, but outside of that, I, I, I'm not aware of any health benefits. So firstly, correct me if I was wrong about anything that I said keto was, <laughs> but can you also talk about are there any health benefits to people bumping up the fat so much? If so, what are they? If not, why are people doing it?
1: Yeah, so I, I think it's always good to define these things because there's quite a philosophical issue of what do you call a ketogenic diet? Because yeah, I can fast for six, I can fast for sixteen hours and have ketones in my blood. Am I doing a ketogenic diet? You could be a top one diabetic
0: uh, and not take your insulin. <laughs>
1: yeah, I hope that will be the very dangerous ketogenic diet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so you brought up the epilepsy point, and I think that is you know where a lot of the sort of the term ketogenic diet came from, and for Decades in the literature and a lot of the basic science work done in animal models and, and still done animals this way. And in human studies, they define ketogenic diets by their ketogenic ratios. So that is, it'll say like a four to one ketogenic diet is often the most common. And four to one means um, it's the grams of fat relative to the grams of carbohydrate plus protein. So you know, numerator, grams of fat uh, and, and denominator grams of carbs plus protein. So, and if you think about, if you have a four to one, it means you have four times the number of grams of fat relative to the number of carbs plus protein and fat is like twice as energy dense. So you very that That basically ends up being an 85% calories from fat. Um, and so you can have a three to one ketogenic diet, which that happens by eating, more carb and more protein, which limits the degree of ketogenesis. And you can go all the way out to like, there's animal models going all the way out to like nine to one ketogenic diets, which get into like protein deficiency and a whole bunch of other stuff. Mm. So often like when we say ketogenic diets, if you say like a medical ketogenic diet, it's typically referring to a four to one uh, keto diet. Now, if you ask most ketogenic diet advocates what their ketogenic ratio is. Yeah. They'll be like, what is that? Uh-huh. Um, so the, the sort of historical context that most of this literature is built out of uh, is lost, I guess, in the past 15, 20 years. And there's really not a huge difference between Atkins of early 90s and what people are calling keto <laughs> nowadays. Because yeah. uh, keto, I think the, the biggest point to pick out here for folks is that medical ketogenic diets are restricted in both carbohydrate and protein. The modern version of what people are calling keto is a high-protein, low-carbohydrate diet, which is not a medical ketogenic diet. And so they'll both produce blood ketones, but you will get much higher with the medical ketogenic diet. Mm. Um, And so that is sort of, again, takes you back to a philosophical question of, is a ketogenic diet anything that will cause ketosis? Because I can feed you 400 calories a day of pure carbohydrate, like just straight up sugar, and you'll probably produce some ketones because you are in a very negative energy deficit um so ketogenic diets if we talk about them the modern conception of low carb high protein uh we have a lot of weight loss studies um that that randomize individuals to low fat diet low fat is almost always defined as less than 30 percent of calories from fat and then uh, and they often emphasize like you're supposed to eat more fibrous-rich carbohydrates uh, with it, but that often doesn't happen, and people just eat refined carbohydrates. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and then uh, the ketogenic diet ends up being just a, a pretty low-carb diet, but also ends up being pretty high-protein. Although that's not always, it's not easy to measure in general, and it's not always asked of participants in the studies. And you know, at six months, there's often better weight loss, and with that, better blood glucose regulation. And then by a year, the things wash out, probably mostly because people are just no longer being adherent to the diet. Um, and is the weight loss due to have, the,
0: the diet or due to calories?
1: I mean, it's always going to be due to calories. It's just yeah. a matter of does the ketogenic diet, I think you mean by calories, you probably mean intake. That's uh, right. So the question that has you know sparked vigorous debate is whether ketogenic diets, for some reason, increase energy expenditure so that fed at the same level of calories you'd have a greater net negative energy balance from eating keto and there is not great evidence for that from the overwhelming majority of the literature there is one study that um, folks sort of advocate that that they see that effect but there are big questions about the quality of the data because again you have to control the diet know every single thing that's going into the person Mm. most of the literature that we have is what i call like assignment trials where you are assigned to the diet we don't have very many very long-term controlled feeding studies where people are inpatient. Everything that they are fed is weighed. Everything they don't eat is weighed back, and you're really, you know, strictly know what what went in, and then mm. you can measure uh, body weight as well. So, and then I think the way that we often link, um, you know, diet to health outcomes is in large prospective cohort studies where you give diet diaries or food frequency questionnaires a baseline. Ideally, you'll measure some biomarker of diet as well, but there are very few of those. And then you link them. You know, Hopefully, you repeat those questionnaires, although that doesn't always happen either. And then you follow people up until they have a cardiovascular event. And almost no one in these large population studies is eating intentionally a ketogenic diet. Mm. Um, so... Pretty much don't have that major component of the evidence that we rely on to actually link diet to these like true endpoints, like having a heart attack. Um, So, we know that ketogenic diets often, when you're when you randomize people to a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet, um, that they tend to lose weight and that that improves a lot of metabolic markers. Um, And so, that's you know good, at least in the short term. Once you're out of the weight loss phase, um, it probably depends a lot on the composition of the diet. So when you're eating that many calories from fat, the little data we do have does say that saturated fats raise LDL in the context of keto. And if you start eating 80% of your calories from, or you know, 60% of your calories from saturated fat, that can have a huge effect on LDL on some people. Um, so that's likely not good. Um, you know, it's a, It definitely increases a risk factor there.
0: Um, so most but, people at home who, who are saying, you know oh, I went on a keto diet, I lost a bunch of weight. Is it simply the fact that they just cut out carbs calorie, and therefore ca- and therefore, cut out calories and it's that calorie deficit, not necessarily anything about the production of ketone bodies, but simply the fact that carb calories are cut out through cutting carbs?
1: Yeah, that is the, uh, most of the, ev- almost all the evidence okay. points to that being the major driver of the effect. There is some thought that potentially ketones themselves might suppress appetite but there's really that's a a very much a theory uh when you give ketones particularly to animal models and to humans in very acute studies ghrelin is lowered and ghrelin is the hunger hormone and it's a modest lowering often um but there's a and and whether ghrelin levels truly predict appetite you know appetite is a very complex regulated thing with both internal physiological cues but then tons of psychosocial cues that really seem to dominate um, but you know, some folks have put forth that keto might be uniquely appetite suppressing, but we still see this by a year in all these studies that, um, the adherence to them is, is quite poor and weight loss has really slowed. Um, and there's not often a difference from the control diet. And that's, I really want to hone in on the, what is the control diet, mm. uh, for folks as they think about this research, there is no placebo for a ketogenic diet in the same way that there's no placebo for saturated fat. So you have to ask keto relative to what? Yeah. And almost all of the data is a relatively crappy low-fat diet that I would argue that the designs are quite biased from the get-go because you're taking people eating pretty moderate amounts of carbohydrates and you're telling them to make almost no change by saying eat less than 30% of your calories from fat, which the average person is eating between 30 and 40% of their calories from fat. And you're, so you're basically telling them, one, to calculate the percentage of calories you're eating from fat and then drop it to a threshold relative to being assigned to cutting out this major food group, like 800 plus calories a day of what you're currently eating, and follow a gram number. Now, if you told somebody to follow eat less than 20 grams of carbs or eat less than 30 percent of your calories from fat, what do you think is easier to follow? Mm. You sitting there reading every single label and calculating the percentage of calories coming from fat, or are you just staying below, staying away from foods that even have carbs and staying below a total net number per day? Um, so it's it, these things are very hard to study. You cannot blind people to yeah. diet basically. And what you often see in the literature is the equal and opposite is very true. When you tell people to eat extremely low fat diets, like less than 10% of energy from fat and basically a very few grams per day, they also see very huge weight loss. So it comes down to, is it something magical Mm -hmm. about keto? Or is it just that if you tell people who are eating a good portion of their calories from carbs or fat to now start avoiding carbs or Mm -hmm. fat, then You you like more of a psychological factor comes comes into play, and unsurprisingly, you know they don't have very high adherence even by three to six months, and that's because we live in an environment of highly tasty things that are rich in both carbs and fat. So it's it's very hard to stay on a very low fat or very low carb diet for too long.
2: So you spoke earlier about that an early response from the keto diet is to weight loss and also um, blood sugar regulation. But during that phase of the weight loss, what, what happens to your blood lipids? What effect could be happening in that particular point in time?
1: This is something that is debated, um, that there there is often a rise in LDL that occurs and a uh, drop in triglyceride levels. And so that often, whether that net, how much that net influences your cardiovascular risk, um, is questionable but the weight loss itself is usually just a major benefit yeah but the ldl can go up and what we don't really know because we don't have very many control feeding trials is the degree to which people start eating a ton more saturated fatty acids and more dietary cholesterol they also cut out fiber um, certain uh, viscous fibers will bind to bile acids in the gut uh, during digestion and lead them to be excreted and that can lower cholesterol a little bit too and some of the other phytonutrients in food might also uh, affect cholesterol levels very modestly. But the net effect of basically cutting out a ton of plant foods uh, is often a, a rise in LDL cholesterol. And, but there is a theory that even independent of all that, that ketogenic diets might increase cholesterol levels. As um, Mike alluded to, you get this buildup of acetyl-CoA and that eventually that acetyl-CoA condenses into forming ketone bodies. But acetyl-CoA is also a precursor for cholesterol synthesis. Um, mm. So cholesterol is just a bunch of acetyl-CoA stuck together essentially and modified. Um, so whether that buildup of acetyl-CoA in the liver, whether some people respond to it by increasing cholesterol synthesis is a, a route uh. of disposal essentially for that um, acetyl-CoA is not really known. So I, I would say that most of the data is so confounded by weight loss, it yeah. is very hard to so, um, say, like, what is the independent effect of keto on, and, and you know, just even the question of what is the independent effect of keto. You could test keto in the context of weight loss, weight stable, overfeeding. Um, we don't have very much data in that, in, in any of those contexts, but the majority of the data we do have is in the context of weight loss. And you see triglycerides drop and LDL tend to go up, and HDL often goes up as well which are things you expect to happen during weight loss too.
0: What this podcast has shown me is it's a perfect example of the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know. Um, Oh yeah. And it's, which for me uh, as a scientist, and I think for Matt as well, we sort of love this. um, You know, you you hit that point where you just go, okay, I I now have zero opinion on any of this because (laughs) I I don't, (laughs) You know, if the experts fully don't yet know, how can I fully know? Uh And and it's obviously complex. It's obviously super interesting. And like you said, people should become – do a PhD and become researchers and jump into this because we need to learn more and more and more. The final thing I'd like to ask – I've got a final Wait, can, I,
1: can I plug one thing there? Oh, look at that. This okay, you, why, go, you go first. This is why – this is why dietitians exist cuz yeah. knowing all of the contextual factors it's not that you know any individual study is useless it's just there's so much complexity to how you study nutrition science making a generalization off a single study can be very difficult um and you know i think we can make we have guidelines and the guidelines i don't think are like terrible and killing people like some people on twitter might say um, but you know it's okay to have general guidelines but i think dietitians can really Look at the evidence, know the evidence in their area well, and then tailor diets. You know, say whether this study and the the data coming from this study is relevant to a person's situation right now and whether embarking on a dietary change might be beneficial. Um, That said, the majority of people in the standard, you know, westernized diets are eating pretty high refined grain diets. They eat a decent amount of saturated fatty acids. um, They're not eating very much fiber. And so, Broad changes, I think we can expect that if you put a, uh, the majority of individuals in Western countries on a more like unrefined plant-based diet that's high in fiber, lower in the saturated fatty acids, higher in mixed unsaturated fatty acid sources, so some monos, some polys, you're going to see expected changes in blood lipids in a manner that goes in the direction we want them going in.
2: Would that be the Mediterranean diet or kind of like it?
1: Yeah. Mediterranean diet is very similar. It tends to emphasize more the monounsaturated yeah. fatty acids coming from things like extra virgin olive oil. There is a thought and a little bit of evidence to support that extra virgin olive oil might lower LDL a little bit more from those polyphenols that are in it and might have some independent benefits for endothelial health and endothelial cell function. Um, and then the Mediterranean diet, I think the thing that distinguishes it so much from something like a DASH diet is that it's a little bit more liberalized on fat um, and it's uh, tends to be, I mean, you know, the Mediterranean, there's such a variable diet. The fact that we call yeah. it the Mediterranean diet, I think is sometimes a little like whitewashed. Um, it's not quite as homogenous, but it tends to focus on complex carbs, even though people in the Mediterranean barely eat complex carbs, like when it comes to pastas mm. and things like fish and olive oil and some nuts and seeds. Um, and so a little bit less starch, heavy is that that pattern a little bit heavier on fats and the protein sources tend to be like eggs and fish and uh, more white meats and not quite as much red okay. yeah
2: just i had one quick question uh and it was you alluded to it earlier so when you spoke about the fats acting in the mouth improving taste and sense there so obviously there's a, a behavior or a, a relationship with the food with a fatty food now we. I assume that we do have some neurological reaction to some carbohydrates where, when you have, um, say, simple sugars or something, you might start to feel good neurologically, and therefore you may have a behavioral attachment to some simple sugars. Is there anything similar with fat, a high fatty diet? Is there a possibility that you may um, become, become kind of behaviorally addicted to certain fatty foods?
1: I think fat is very much like sugar and sweets is like a reinforcing factor. It increases palatability of foods and, um, you know, this, this whole area of like food addiction and, and whatnot that you've kind of alluded to yeah. is very contentious. He's yeah. It's one of those things where I'm like, uh, if my colleagues listen to this, I want to make sure I say yeah. this <laughs> in a way that does it justice without overstating anything. I'm sure you guys know this. Absolutely. this pain. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the the brain definitely responds to eating fatty foods and views it often as pleasurable. Whether that's because of a oral gastric kind of sensing, I, I can't say that. Um, but we definitely, you know, fatty things and uh, sweet things and starchy things tend to elicit that sort of dopamine response that is triggers as being pleasurable. Um, but the, yeah this is, again becomes a huge issue with nutrition You have infinite number of permutations where you can test these general questions like it sounds simple like does fat influence the, the brain's response and it's like well in what con in what greater dietary feeding context does mm. it have to be there with sugar sh- and it seems like you know sugar reinforces um, the effects of fat and fat reinforces the effects of sugar and that's why things like muffins and whatnot are, are hard to kind of control or eating around because you get this, they're the hyper palatable is often the yeah. word. Yeah. But I'm not a neuroscientist and I apologize to every neuroscientist. Listening <laughs> to <that. laughs>
0: um, my final question to you uh, is basically what would be your either take home message or advice for someone aspiring to get into the health field or a lot of our listeners are aspiring health professionals and it could be for, for Medico's, you know, nurses, physios, it could be people studying uh, nutrition, dietitian, things like that. Um, what's your advice? Is, is there anything take home here uh, that you'd like to, to give these individuals? I
2: think he already answered that. He said do a PhD in epidemiology on H- HDLs and LDLs.
0: Very specific. I like that <laughs> yes. advice.
2: It's so hateful that i said that to you, PhD. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Sacrifice that's
1: true your 20s and make a lot less money than that's, you <laughs> that's right destroy your uh,
0: existence do a phd
1: no i think i think one thing you know you can get lost in the complexity of all these things and it's always good to like take a step back and walk through the basics it's like you know you can get in the weeds about what are what are all the lip protein classes and whatnot and it's like just remember these are just like Hydrophobic cores with a hydrophilic outside that are meant to be able to transport lipids around and, and start to make sense of the complex picture I feel like often people dive in at the sort of if you think of things like a tree They're diving in at like a, all these different branches and trying to see how they all come together And It's like we'll start at the base and work your way up mm. and then sort of kind of figure it out from there and It's it's fine to learn things in an overly simplistic way I mean, that's why we teach you you might have your basics and intro to human nutrition class and then you work all the way up to like i have a textbook next to me called biochemical physiological molecular aspects of human nutrition Mm -hmm. um, that tells you more than you'd ever want to know but um, i think if you found all this stuff interesting what i I personally enjoy is having some sort of a clinical tie-in so it's like okay if you can understand how do fats influence LDL cholesterol, and then kind of work your way down into the exact mechanisms of these sorts of things? And often you find that it's gray; we don't really know. But um, you know, make sure you keep an idea of the bigger picture. And we know, like, it's like we know that saturated fats tend to raise LDL cholesterol in the blood. And we know that that's probably by influencing LDL receptor activity. Okay, then you can dive into, is it membrane fluidity? Is it nuclear receptors? Is it G protein coupled receptors? But if you kind of start at the bottom of that tree, it can be pretty tough. And at the end of the day, knowing the the feeding study evidence and whatnot and what the general guidelines are is a really good starting point. And then once you have those basic clinical phenomena, start digging in deeper and asking why.
0: And then do a PhD. Yeah, (laughs) or...
1: No, or don't, <laughs> or enjoy your life and
0: don't do a PhD. Uh, no, doc-
1: no, PhDs are are, are great. Uh, they are just, you know, it is something I think you go in being like, I'm going to leave here knowing everything. Yeah. And, you know, I I'd always tell people it's like a pie. I became an RD to understand the crust of the pie of nutrition and the PhD is just a really micro slice. But yeah. the longer I went into the PhD, the smaller that slice of pie got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, What I could expect to know.
0: But- Absolutely.
1: I think, you know, we need more people in research and bringing fresh ideas, these sorts of things. And if this excites you, um, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or over email and I can send you some resources. I am a known, uh, e-textbook hoarder and I can probably send you any level of textbooks. Um, I, I do pay for Google drive upgraded storage.
0: <laughs> all my textbooks. <laughs> well, in saying that, what are your, uh, social media handles or ways that people can actually contact you?
1: Um, I am on Instagram and Twitter mainly, at KCKLATT. So it's just my first two initials and then last name. Um, And you can follow me there. And I will eventually answer your DMs, I think. Uh, But you can also find me at uh, my email address is bcm.edu. I'm super fortunate I didn't get some obscure thing. There was never a (laughs) clat in the history of Baylor College of Medicine, I guess, while Uh, I had email. Yeah, and then I can, if if I don't know the answer, I can point you in the direction of somebody that does. And uh, you can also hear we have a podcast over at the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition called AJCN in Press, where it's a bit of a wonkier dive into um, recently published articles. So if you're feeling a bit more advanced and want to kind of hear author interviews about stuff that we're publishing over there, uh, we cover a lot of nutrition epi, a lot of lipid stuff that we just sort of talked about with authors as they're contributing to further refinement and understanding of the literature.
0: That's awesome. Dr. Kevin Clatt, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me.